We are continuing this morning in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and I have to kind of make an announcement or a qualifier here. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you've probably visited upon one of the most challenging texts. I, I don't want to say I'm sorry, I'm glad you're here, but I need to let you know it's not every week that I preach on what I'm calling the trifecta of anger, lust, and divorce. This just happens to, so it's kind of like I want to make sure you come back if, if you get, uh, folks in the hospitality ministry are looking at me nodding, going, this might be a good announcement Jeff is making in terms of that. Uh, I have to admit, this is a challenging text and difficult text to preach. I don't know of a pastor out there who doesn't struggle with this. And in the way of confession and vulnerability, if you're a person like me, who as an oldest child, I have what I call oldest child syndrome. And that means I like to keep everybody around me happy. And as I look at this text, I'm going, that's an impossibility. There is no way I can keep the Lord happy and be faithful to this text and keep you all happy. So I'm in a lose-lose situation here. So take no offense, but I'm going to choose the Lord over you. Okay, I'm going to try to love you well, but I have to be faithful. Did somebody say good choice out there? Okay, I think that is, I tend to agree. But but I'm hoping I don't whittle the congregation from 170 to 2 after, you know, after this sermon. But we do need to take a look because Jesus is teaching. And let me give a couple of qualifiers even before we look at this. A couple of things in the way of reminders. We talked about how Jesus came to fulfill the law and not abolish this. So we see in this Jesus' attitude to the word of God. And we're talking in the text today not about how to become a Christian, not about entrance into the kingdom of God, but discipleship, how to live in the kingdom of God, and how to live with faithfulness, purity, and integrity as a believer where all the truth of the gospel is true of you. There's no condemnation because the righteousness of Jesus, his obedience, his faithfulness, is your faithfulness, is your obedience, is your... And we now obey out of that. We know uh, Paul worded it to the Romans, it's the obedience of faith. It's born of faith. So everything we're calling, he's calling Christians, those in the kingdom. And let's remember what he said before. He said your vocation as Christians is to do what? To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now he's expounding what it means to be the salt of the light of the earth and the light of the world. He's called us to that vocation. And now he's saying, here's what it looks like. In light of that, let's turn on our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 21 to 32. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. And while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
then let your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And friends, this is God's word. All right, a couple of introductory comments before we dive into the text. We're into the next major section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and that's found in Matthew 5, 21 to 48, and it's a series of six statements, antitheses, if you would, which are statements of contrast, where Jesus says, remember, he's making disciples here, so this is his discipleship curriculum, and he's saying, you've heard that it was said to those of old. So he's drawn a contrast, and then he says, but I say to you, and he's giving something where he is truly expounding on the word of God. One commentator put it, he said, the real contrast in this section is between the meaning of the law according to Jesus and the meaning of the word of God according to religious leaders. Theological tradition, religious tradition, the ancient teachers. This commentator writer put, Jesus is certainly not contradicting the word of God here. What he is doing is it's an issue of authority. You notice each one of these things, and we're going to look at the first three of these antitheses this week, the next three next week. Each one starts with the same pattern, the same formula. You've heard that it was said to those of old. Notice it doesn't say you've, you heard what it was written. He's not contradicting. You've heard the interpretation. You've heard what religious tradition said. You've heard what teachers said. And then he's contrasting that with his authority. But I say to you, in other words, it's kind of like an implicit or a tacit challenge. Who are you going to listen to? Tradition or me? Your religious teachers or me? That's kind of like what the writer to the Hebrews said when he said, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to share this also as a way of frame of reference before I give you the outline and move you on. And that is that we've got to know what the right questions are to ask of this text, and also what are the wrong questions in terms of asking of this text. Jesus is teaching us, and he's teaching the disciples here, how to be true to your vocation of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He's saying this is what it looks like. In other words, he's teaching us what it means to be truly human. What it means to be genuinely human. And to be genuinely human is all about relationships. It's all about to be human is to be relational. And so he's going to give here three of the chief destroyers of relationships. And he wants us to see this. And he, in a sense... And I'm not saying these things aren't literal, but they may not be physically literal. It's a hypothetical literal. Commentators use that phrase. In order to basically say he's trying to wake us up, take seriously, and say deal ruthlessly with these issues of relationship breakers. So right question is to be asking yourself, how am I, and I'm going to fill in the blanks in a second, 
How am I angry? How am I lustful? How am I unfaithful? How do I still live according to the flesh and don't promote relationship, but maybe take away from relationship? Would be the right question. Wrong questions would be, is this an instance where I should be gouging out my eye? And what happens if I lust more than twice in my life? I'm in deep trouble now. And what? That's not the right question to ask of the text. Does Jesus give us illustrations like that and give us things like that to be serious? That's why I want to say it's not that he's not being literal. I think, I think he's actually saying, and we'll get to this in a second, be more radical than even the text is saying. Take more seriously than even the text is saying. But one of the ways we're that radical and obedient in that sense is to ask the right questions of the text. What does it mean to be truly human? Jesus is saying, I want you to display to the world, to be a showcase to the world, a city on a hill. You're the light of the world because you're in Christ. You're the salt of the earth, and here's what it looks like. And it is ruthlessly and fundamentally relational. And he's saying three of the biggest killers of relationship are violence, lust, and unfaithfulness. Anger, Lust and unfaithfulness. And so, pathways, if you would, to wholeness, pathways to purity, however you want to call it, pathways to be truly human are to be wholeheartedly pursuing reconciliation, have a wholehearted, proper desire, and to live in wholehearted loyalty or allegiance. Let's take a look at each one of these. The first section, verse 21, begins, you've heard that it was said, and I had Andrew read right out of the Ten Commandments, do not murder, you shall not murder, and that's obvious. But then Jesus is taking it further because he's going to the heart, and that's why I titled this sermon, Getting to the Heart, because of all these things, you know, it's easy. And we live in a day and age, and I don't think, you know, what did the teacher in Ecclesiastes say? There's nothing new under the sun. We've always been given to blame shifting and excuse making. And it's nothing, you know, you can hear the questions and the religious teachers and the leaders all saying, well, when is murder really murder? You know, the theologians and religious leaders then and now by their discussions, their distortions, always lead to the result of narrowing down the word of God. And Jesus goes after all manner of excuse making and blame shifting when he talks about anger because he says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, in other words, has animosity of heart, hatred of heart, contempt. And that's kind of an attitude type of thing. Yes, it comes out a lot of times. It doesn't always come out. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. All three of these things, anger, lust, divorce, anger, lust, unfaithfulness, if you would, because the issue there is more of unfaithfulness. Have one thing in common. They are all demanding in one way, shape, or form satisfaction now. One of the things we have to recognize, when Jesus came on the scene and he began his public ministry, and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven now. Here's the reality in the context that we live in. We live in two worlds as Christians at the same time. 
The kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated. It's right. That's why when we sing, when we praise, that's why when we sing something like, great is thy faithfulness, we can sit there and say, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Why does that peace endure? Because the realities of the kingdom of God have already come. You already experience peace to some degree now. It's real. It's arrived. Jesus brought it. That's one world, but exists in the context of another world. The world of darkness. And these two worlds live side by side. And so one of the most difficult things in the Christian life is we were built for heaven, we were built for the future world, we were built for that, and because of our flesh, because of sin, we can have a demanding spirit and demand satisfaction now. And all three of these things involve demanding satisfaction now. Anger is a power issue where you are demanding the satisfaction of power now. Jesus is going after our anger and he's saying that our anger is a very real problem with us. One of the biggest ways we see how great a problem it is is that very few of us admit that we have an anger problem. Do we have an anger No, I've dealt with my anger a long time ago. Not me. Jesus says, oh yeah? James put it this way. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, a tiny little member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, among the, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Jesus goes for murder, and he says, you don't say you're murdered. Let's look at how you talk to others. You say you're pro-life, but are you really? Do your words contribute to people's life? Do they enhance the good, the beautiful, the lovely? Do they enhance or do they take away from life? St. Clair Ferguson put it this way. He said, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we have left behind. Which is why our Lord invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. He uses language we readily understand. Anger incurs judgment using terms of contempt is worthy of condemnation by the highest court. Calling someone a fool fits us for hell. Jesus is not so much placing these sins on a scale of seriousness in the kingdom of God. He is simply stressing vividly that they are far more serious than most of us assume. In fact, our insensitivity to their real seriousness is indicative of the dullness of our spiritual senses. Now you might be saying, we might be sitting out there and you might be objecting, wait a second, Jeff, isn't there a such thing in the Bible as righteous anger versus unrighteous anger? My anger is righteous anger. There is a such thing as righteous anger, but be careful here. Dan Allender, in what I think is a terrific book, because he takes emotions that we feel, and in each emotion he contrasts the unrighteous side of it versus the redemptive side of it. And here's what he said about unrighteous anger. Title the book to the cry of the soul, and he says, God designed and blessed anger in order to energize our passion to destroy sin. So that's righteous anger. But he says, anger can be lovely and redemptive, but it can also be ugly and vindictive. It depends in part on the object of the anger. 
how it is expressed, and why the anger is unleashed. The anger expressed in most interactions has little to do with the redemptive purpose of destroying ugliness in order to enhance what is good. The person filled with unrighteous anger suppresses the freedom of others, trying to force submission. That's where anger becomes a power issue. St. Clair Ferguson says the anger Jesus goes after here is because of our innate desire to be superior to others. And do you know why we have to be superior to others? Because we're not satisfied. We're not filled with the glory of the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness becomes not enough for us, functionally. We believe in it, but we've got to learn to connect dots between our justification and sanctification. And so the energy that comes out is we're trying to prove ourselves. We're being defensive of ourselves, and we're trying to prove ourselves superior. So we may say we are out to destroy sin, but Allender says, look at the symptoms. The person filled with unrighteous anger suppresses the freedom of others. You want to take a diagnostic test? Ask the person that you are looking to grow their beauty, enhance their good, be a redemptive agent in their life. Dare to ask them how you come across to them. How do they hear you? How do they receive you? Do they receive you as being for, for them? Do they receive you as being to want to be used in their life to make them as free, as liberated, as delivered, as beautiful, as lovely as they can be because they're a redeemed, renewed image bearer of Jesus Christ. That's the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. And Jesus goes on to say, he gives two illustrations. He says, what's the solution? What is the pathway? It's a whole hearted commitment to the priority of reconciliation. And he gives these two illustrations. You're going to church and you realize, and in both these illustrations, realize you don't have something against the person, they have something against you. And you recognize they have something against you and what are you doing? You're committed to the fact that we're family. We work it out. The priority and the necessity of reconciliation. St. Clair Ferguson said, animosity is a time bomb. We do not know when it will go off, but it will. The first pathway to genuine, Jesus is teaching us how to be genuinely human. I hope you see this as an utterly freeing. This is God for us in this passage. The first pathway is this commitment to reconciliation. The second is all about wholehearted desire. If anger is all about power, what is lust about? The text says again, the antithesis, the contrast. You've heard that it was said to those of old, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now what is meant by this? And again, when he gets down to the consequences, how to deal with it, D.A. Carson sums it up right. And again, this is the approach, right and wrong questions. D.A. Carson says, if all we are concerned with is gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands, we're not being radical enough. Where does sin come from? Is the culprit of sin your eye? Is that the originator of your sin? What is the culprit? Our heart. 
Sin originates in your heart. The issue is so much more than just the gouging of eyes and the cutting off of hands. The it, and recognize this too about lust. Lust is about so much more than sexual desire. Yes, Jesus is using that illustration, but it's about so much more than that when we look at what the word means and what Jesus is getting at here. I want to quote at length from Tim Keller here because I think he has the best discussion of what's meant here when he talks about this. And Tim Keller mentioned how so many feel that the church is just uptight about the topic of sex and sexuality. And he mentions how one could feel this way if they looked just at the surface of the text and didn't go deeper. And he quoted from an article which speaks about all the brokenness. It wasn't necessarily even a Christian article, but he's just speaking. The article spoke about all the brokenness, all the problems, everything that occurs in the world because of sex and sexuality. And he writes this. He says, the bottom line of the article was, it seems like no matter how hard you run after sex, you never seem to be able to actually catch it, and it never delivers. It never gives you what you're after. On the other hand, no matter how fast you try to run away from sex, you never seem to be able to avoid it. He says, what accounts for this? What accounts for the brokenness? What accounts for all the problems? He says, Jesus is actually saying what accounts for it is not that the world has too high a view of sex, but too low a view of sex. He's saying you do not recognize its power. You do not respect its power. He says the stuff about hell, which a lot of people say, oh my goodness, going to hell for lust. He says Jesus actually chooses. There are a number of words you could use, and the word he chooses is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was literally the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was outside the city. It was the place where you put your refuse. It was the place where you put your garbage. It was the place where things that were rotting and decaying were put out there and burned. And he says that is an aspect, one part of what hell is. That's the reason why it's there. And he says what Jesus is saying is unless you learn to deal not only with sex, but the entire issue of lust. He says it's bigger than that. It's mysterious. It's awesome. It's unique. He says the problem is not that we have too high but too low of you. And he goes on to say, what exactly is lust? And the Greek word that Jesus uses here is an interesting word because he uses it in this particular passage, speaking about sex, but he uses it all over the place in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul to talk about something far deeper. The Greek word is epithumia, and it's the word for both impersonal an inordinate desire. Here the text says, if anyone looks on a woman, notice how impersonal that is. Not your wife. So epithumia or lust is impersonal desire. It's not covenantal. It's not relational. Therefore, it's not human. It dehumanizes us. And then it's inordinate. It means, and Dr. Keller says, it's an over-desire an idolatrous desire. It means to take something good and try to get from it what you can only get from God. Which means in the way of application, if anger was related to power, lust, whether it's of sexual desire or whether it's of anything else, family, health, sports, politics, control, popularity, Friendship, 
being right, whatever the issue. It's about filling emptiness. It's demanding satisfaction. See, the fact that we live in two worlds at the same time now means that there is going to be all the time a degree of emptiness. And the fruit of the Spirit is patience, with me, which means long-suffering. You can live by the discipline of waiting, or you can say, I must have it now. And maybe you go after it through sexuality. Maybe you go through it with being a workaholic, being overly busy, being consumed with sports. I'll pick on myself. Having to be right. It's an impersonal and an ordinate desire that's demand. What's common of all three things is a demanding spirit. I won't wait. I will have heaven now. And I'll demand it through power. And I'll demand it through filling my emptiness. Jesus was speaking later on in the Gospel of John to his disciples. And he was saying hard things to them. Much like he's saying to his disciples now. And many of them wanted to turn away. They wanted to leave. John chapter 6 records this. And Jesus says to his 12, those who he was entrusting his movement to, his mission to, and he says, what about you? Do you want to leave also? Do you want to depart? And Peter, as is so often the case, speaks for the 12, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? That's the issue. See, the issue of lust, of impersonal and inordinate desire, is the issue of where will I turn for satisfaction? And we live in a world that, yes, we have so many technological blessings, so many different blessings, but we live in such a world of distraction, opportunity. We live in a world where we are distracted all the time to look for our satisfaction outside of God. You've got to ask yourself, and this is not just a become, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is a kingdom question. Where will you go today for the words of life? Where will you go today for satisfaction? Where will you go today? Either your satisfaction is in God alone or it's in something else. C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that's why we become angry, because we're lustful for power, empty, because we're trying to fill our emptiness. And that's why, not all the time, but that's Jesus also tackles this very difficult topic of marriage and divorce. And I want to be very, very sensitive here, because I know in our day and our time, very few of us haven't been touched, haven't been impacted by this topic here. And I have to be, by necessity, very, very brief and cursory here. And as a matter of fact, this is only one time. This is not a full study. So this is not comprehensive on what the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce. Because this is one text out of many. We're not looking at Matthew 19 or Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5. Actually, we're going to start in the fall looking at Ephesians 5. Okay, so there's many, many things. But just being very, very cursory here, let me just say a couple of things, and I pray it's very sensitively. First of all, recognize marriage is instituted by God. It's God's idea. It's God's invention. Therefore, God regulates it. God states its design. Man does not state its design. It's God's idea. He does it. 
and divorce is not God's original intention, but as the text says, there are grounds for divorce. What Jesus is going after here is divorce on demand. Remember I said early on in this sermon, we tend to excuse make and we tend to blame shift all over. And one of the things that was happening in interpretations and in religious traditions, for example, Deuteronomy 24 was one of those things. Deuteronomy 24 describes where a man could divorce his wife because she finds no favor in his eyes, because he finds some indecency in her. Jesus, like he did with anger, like he did with lust, he says, it's not just murder, it's not just adultery, it's unfaithfulness. And he's going after the heart. See, marriage is a covenant relationship. The Old Testament provided for one exception, and that was the marital unfaithfulness, the adultery of one spouse. Matthew uses a very broad term. The Greek word is the word porneia. And commentators say, in any other case, divorce makes the woman commit adultery, and anyone then who then marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus has to then view the fact that the divorced woman would be of necessity. She has to take care of herself. She has to sustain herself. She'd be forced to or driven to remarry for the sake of needing to provide for herself, her own sustenance. And so only in the case of adultery would such a remarriage not be an act of adultery itself. Why is this? Commentators said, look at this in the light of the Old Testament law. The penalty in the Old Testament for adultery was death. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 stated this. Thus when the penalty was executed, the marriage would come to an abrupt end. The living partner, because it's over, was free to marry again. Now remember something when comparing the Old and the New Testament. This is very, very crucial. The Old Testament is giving us spiritual principles, in other words, God's design, but it was delivered and administered in physical expressions, in physical terms. So now you get to Jesus' time in the first century. Palestine is under Roman occupation, and under Roman occupation, under Roman rule, the death penalty was no longer carried out. And so the person who committed adultery was still alive. They still lived. So Sinclair Ferguson states that Jesus' teaching seems to suggest the rightness of acting as if the penalty had been carried out. In this case, the wronged partner is free to marry again. In other words, unfaithfulness, adultery, immorality created a situation where you were free, where you were free to act as if that person ceased to be. We need to recognize even in our doctrinal statements, the Westminster Confession of Faith and its chapter on marriage and divorce makes the point there are biblical and unbiblical grounds for divorce. And it mentions adultery and willful desertion as being biblical grounds for divorce. Now let me close with just two things real quick. Let me quote one commentator who puts all of this in context and I thought this was very good looking at the whole. Remember I said earlier, ask the right and the wrong questions. We're talking about becoming a genuinely human person. This commentator says it may be stating the obvious to point out that if people knew how to control their bodily lusts, in other words, if we weren't so busy filling our emptiness, if we could be satisfied with God, then he looks ahead to the text to come on honesty. And he says if we were committed to complete integrity and truth-telling, 
said there might be far fewer divorces. It says divorce often happens when lust and lies have been allowed to grow up like weeds and choke the fragile and beautiful plant of marriage. The application is search your heart. Where do you have a demanding spirit in your life? Because that's going to lead to the fruit of demanding satisfaction now. Whether it's in the air, it may even be a smoldering act. Maybe you're not on a wild rage, but are you demanding that kind of power? Maybe it's in the area of filling the emptiness of your soul. Maybe it leads to genuine unfaithfulness. Second thing I want to close with is how do we respond to all that Jesus is commanding and instructing? Sounds impossible, doesn't it? Let me affirm that. Yes, it is. It is impossible unless we look at Jesus. And I quoted this verse earlier, and I want to quote it again, and I want you to take it to heart. Hebrews chapter 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. See, if you don't, you know what it means to fix? It's to stare, to gaze, to be consumed, to be obsessed, to be engulfed. Too often the problem in, I think, in so much of the Christian church is one of depth. We have so many distractions all around us. It is so easy to be distracted with so much that we glance for five minutes at Jesus. Or if we're real spiritual, we show up for church and glance for one hour. The inevitable result of doing that will be to water down and distort the word of God. If you're going to take the word of God seriously, your only hope is Jesus Christ. He and he exclusively and he alone has the words of eternal life. And I can't handle his commands and you can't handle his commands unless we are engulfed and enraptured with him. And I want you to look at what's true of the gospel through this text. Fix your eyes with me for a moment at Jesus. First of all, the issue of power and anger. You realize on the cross what Jesus was doing. Was he demanding satisfaction now? Was he demanding his true superiority and power over others? Well, he entered into the ultimate place of weakness. And he took, he had fall upon himself the entire load of the anger of his enemies. The Roman leaders, the Jewish leaders, and you and I fell upon him. He took all of the anger and all of the injustice upon himself. And why? So we could be reconciled to him and to the triune God. How about the issue of demanding satisfaction now and the issue of emptiness? Philippians 2, in this great hymn of the faith, they say it's an early hymn of the Christian faith, says he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to and grasp, but he laid it down. He emptied himself. He willingly chose emptiness and became obedient even to death on a cross. What about the issue of covenant faithfulness having to do with divorce? When he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You realize that in a sense, God was cutting him off, forsaking him, divorcing him so that he would never have to divorce us. Because do you know what the Bible says we are? We are the bride of Christ. Do you recognize you're Jesus' wife? 
I've had the privilege of doing premarital counseling a lot and do that. I always, I'm five foot three. I can't really physically intimidate anybody. But I'll get these big guys in there and I'm doing premarital counseling and I'll kind of say, let me give you the best advice I can in terms of how to be a good husband. Learn first how to be a good wife. Of course, well, what? What do you mean? I'm a guy, I'm macho. Be a good wife. Huh. You better learn how to be the bride of Christ. Let Christ pour into you. Let Christ enter into you. Let Christ value you. Let Christ protect you. Let Christ nurture you. Let Christ nourish you. Let Christ call you the apple of his eye. Let Christ be your husband and you be a wife before you ever learn to be a good husband, let alone a good wife. Jesus went to the cross. The only way you're going to conform to the word of God and the only way we're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world Showing the world by our holiness, being a light to the nations, by our being distinct. Nothing gets more distinct. Do you know how countercultural this text of Scripture is? This goes against everything that's out in the world. There is nothing more radical and countercultural than this text of Scripture that says the way to be human is to give up your power, become weak, and be faithful within the boundaries God has set. And the only way for us to be salt of the earth and for the, the light of the world is to gaze, to be in love, to be enraptured. That's why Paul said, may I never boast. And that word boast means obsess. See, our issue, Rick referred to this earlier in his prayer when he says we have to drink from Christ. We need to be drowned with Christ. You can't get enough of Christ. And that's the issue in our Christian life. Will we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, and you were that joy, endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty, the place of rule and the place of reign, where he is in charge. The nations may be raging. Our nation may be raging. God is laughing because Jesus Christ is in charge. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach me and teach us, in a sense, the church to be the church, for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I pray that we'd see him as the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that we would see him as the founder and the pioneer, the captain of our salvation. And we recognize he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that you love, most heavenly Father. That we are in that kingdom and that we would be a sign and an agent of that kingdom. We would grow in humanity, grow in our genuine humanness, grow in our authenticity, grow in our purity and in our integrity and in our faithfulness, grow in being willing to be weak and being willing to wait, being willing to not demand Help us to examine our lives and see where we have a demanding spirit, a critical spirit. Help us to be courageous people. Is it any wonder when we look at what the Word of God really says that you say be strong and very courageous? Lord, we need your spirit and we need you if we're going to grow in any way, shape, or form in these areas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.